Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. I hope you had a Merry Christmas and a wonderful start to the new year. If you'll turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, as you're turning there, I'm going to read a, a little illustration for you. $27.95 doesn't sound like a lot of money in this day and age. It is, but $27.95 is an important number uh, in new beginnings. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, what do you mean? There was a man by the name of John Wainwright who bought this book. I'll read it to you. Fluid Concepts and Creative Analogies, Computer Models of the Fundamental Mechanisms of Thought. He spent $27.95 on that book. I'm not going to read the title again, but why is that so significant? John Wainwright was the first person to buy a book on Amazon.com. It was a new beginning for Amazon, and as we know, Amazon's taken off since. Amazon was so thankful for that that they named one of their buildings in Seattle. The building is called Wainwright after this purchase. New beginning. Seemingly insignificant, $27.95. Who knew at the time where it was going? Our God is a God of new beginnings in our lives. Today I'm picking a text to choose. Uh, it's, some would say it's a Christmas text. Pastor Jeff, why are you preaching on a Christmas text? We just got done with Christmas. But never forget that the scriptures are timeless. The reason I'm preaching on this is there's a little verse of scripture in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says these words. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I thought to myself, Jesus said there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I think I'm going to search this a little bit. Why did Jesus think John the Baptist was so great? You see, the world has a definition of greatness. It's accumulation of possessions, wealth, power. Jesus has a definition of greatness that's just the opposite of what the world views as greatness. So I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and over the next several weeks try to peel the onion, if you will, on God's definition of greatness. For you all know what this world says is great. Let's see what Jesus says is great. So what can we learn about John the Baptist? Ms. Kathy read the text earlier. I'm going to go ahead and break this down for you by starting. And here's point number one on your outline. God knows about our problems. Oh, great, Pastor Jeff. You're starting off 2022 by talking about problems. I've got enough already, okay? I understand, but we've got to have a starting point, don't we? And what the Lord is teaching us here is a really, really significant series of truths. Let's look at verses 5, 6, and 7. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. The first thing we want to look at is the positive. Let's see how the scriptures define Zechariah and Elizabeth. These were two people that were, quote, blameless. They were upright. I mean, they had a lot going for them. They had good spiritual bloodlines. He was from a priestly family. She was a descendant of Aaron. Uh, they both had a tremendous spiritual lineage, a spiritual heritage. They chose to do the right thing. It says they were blameless. 
Not only that, they had done the right thing for a long time. They were blameless. They were, they were up in years. By the way, here's a little hint. God is not limited to your age. God can work through the young and God can work through the old. God doesn't place limits based on what we call our limits, what we say are limits. They were well along in years and it seems like, you know, God would, you know, use a little earlier time to do this. But God is a master of doing the miraculous when you say you and I come to the conclusion that he can't do anything anymore. The Bible even tells us what the problem was here. Elizabeth was barren. Now, you would think that God was going to bless those that were doing the upright, righteous thing for a long period of time. But God allowed a problem to come into this couple's life. Now, to put this in perspective, in that culture, being barren was seen as a sign of divine disfavor. Now, can you imagine the prayers that they prayed? God, please take this problem away. We just want a child. I mean, that's been the prayer of many through the years. And we see this blameless activity, but we also see this barrenness. So what's happened here is we could call it possibly discouragement setting in. Perhaps they, we know they prayed. We'll see that more in a moment. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, years after years, the desire was to remove this barrenness. And seemingly the heavens were brass. Did God not care? Because this problem existed. The problem was there for a long, long time. Could God not fix it? Why didn't God fix it? I mean, there's a bunch of questions that come from this problem. They didn't do anything wrong. They were upright, blameless, and righteous. You know, you see that thread throughout all of Scripture. You see righteous people getting big problems. I mean, we go back to to Joseph. Joseph said no to Potiphar's wife and for his righteous decision, he ended up in jail. <laughs> David was chased by Saul through the caves for 13 and a half years by just being a righteous man. And he didn't kill King Saul when he could have while he was in those caves. You can go through scripture and see time after time after time when God gives a big problem to a righteous person, you and I, the way we think, we're like, well, God should bless them. They're righteous. Why would he, you know, give them a bad problem? Because God wants to show off in our problems. God's problems are opportunities for us to trust him. Will you trust him when he gives you a big problem or are you going to complain about it? It's not going to do any good. Complaining doesn't fix problems last time I checked, but it's a, a nice place to go to. But God says, no, I want to teach you something about me in the midst of your problem. If you look at church history, you will see people having to deal with discouragement when difficult problems come. And you and I are going to have to face this same problem. Are we going to be discouraged when God gives us a problem? For example, Adoniram Judson was a tremendous missionary, but for the first seven years of his ministry, he had no fruit. He had nothing to show for it. In the book, To the Golden Shore, the author says that Adoniram Judson got so depressed in Burma that he dug his own grave and waited for God to kill him. Effective missionary for Jesus Christ. And he says, you know what? I'm going to build a grave, dig a grave, and I'm going to ask God to kill me. I mean, Elijah, the great prophet, said, Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. That's how far discouragement can go. Martin Luther, who we call the great reformer of the Protestant Reformation, was so discouraged in the poor response to his preaching in Wittenberg 
that he gave up preaching for more than nine months in 1530. These are people just like you and I. And they got to the place of discouragement where they wrote out an ultimatum to the Lord and they said, I've had enough. You ever said that? You ever said, I've had enough? God, you're taking too long. Why don't you intervene? Can't you see this is a problem, Lord? What's your problem? What is the problem that you have? You're not any different from the way God's treated people in the past. For some reason, God hasn't chosen to show up yet. Uh, But God will show up in his perfect time. God will show up in his perfect way. Problems don't mean God doesn't love you. In fact, they could mean just the opposite. Problems are invitations for you to find out that God does love you. He's going to show up in a way that you just can't even imagine or think it through. So you've got to have the response to the length of the problem. What's your response? Frustration? Well, what they did is they kept praying, kept hoping, kept waiting for God's answer. That, my friends, is a sign of spiritual maturity. You don't know what God's up to, but you know the character of God that you can trust him until he does decide to answer in his perfect way. God's doing more in you when he's seemingly not doing something around you. Are you going to let him change you on the inside while he doesn't change your circumstances on the outside? Our God is a God of internal change before he does external change. Will you trust him? Point number two. All right. We see the problem. God hears our prayers. Prayers. Let's read verses 8, 9, and 10. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen, underline this, chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now let's just give a little understanding of what's going on here. There were 24 priestly divisions and Zechariah was a member of the 8th division and they had an assignment. They were supposed to go into the holy place and keep the incense burning every morning and every night. And he was, Zechariah was chosen by lot. Now this is a high honor. This is something that perhaps didn't even happen in the lifetime of some of these folks. You couldn't do it twice. You could only do it once. It would be the high point of Zechariah's ministry. And you're thinking to yourself, well, this is, this is good of God to do this. He's not been able to have a child, so God is giving him a reward in another area. He's going to be chosen to burn incense. This is something you could tell the, the friends later, later down the line. Yeah, I, I got chosen by lot to go ahead and burn incense in the service to the Lord. And, and this would be a high honor in his spiritual life. And you're thinking, well, is this a substitute? Is God giving him this? Because they didn't have the opportunity to have a child, why would God do something like this? Well, I love what it says in the text later that Zachariah and Elizabeth had been praying for a child. But notice also the assembled worshipers would be praying outside. So a lot of things are coming together here at one point. You ever notice how it takes a long time in our mind before God shows up suddenly? (laughs) God shows up suddenly in a way that you and I would never even imagine. It looks like just chance. Look what it says. He was chosen by lot. What that means is in order to get picked to go in and burn incense in the temple, uh, they would just cast lots. You and I would call it throwing the dice, something like that. They would just cast lots. And by casting lots, a decision was made and you got picked. Well, it seems so insignificant. It seems like it was just chance. 
you can control your decisions, but you can't control the casting of lots. But God can control the casting of lots. And God can control the casting or making of decisions, which we see here. He was chosen by lot. It was Zachariah's time to be picked. He didn't pick it. God picked him. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So you see two things going on here. You see the natural, but you also see the supernatural. You don't see the supernatural, but you see the supernatural in action, as we're going to see in a few moments. How do you make your decisions? Do you have to be in control of decision-making or not? If you go to Genesis chapter 13, there's a story about Abram and Lot. And they get to pick where they're going to choose. And Abram says, Lot, tell you what, you just pick. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. I know that God's going to be in control, whatever you choose. And Lot says, well, I want to go towards Sodom. We find out later that was a really poor decision that Lot made. But notice Abram, he had the confidence in God, knowing that if you choose this way, God's going to send me this way. I know God's got this. And if, and if you choose to go in a different direction than I go into, God's got this. I'm going to let you choose because I'm going to let God choose for me. A lot of times when we feel we have to be in control, uh, we feel like we've got to do God's decision making for him. Well, here we see in this episode, if you will, lots are being chosen for Zechariah. And he just says, well, hey, it's my lucky day. I'm going to go in there. Not even knowing what's about to happen. But God knows. Listen, there are going to be decisions made outside of your control that God knows about. Do you trust that God knows what's going on or do you have to be in control? A lot of times we don't like it that way. But God likes it that way. He's in control even when we don't think that he is. So we see here something. That, look at verse 10. When the time of the burning incense came, all the assemblers worshipped were praying outside. Here's a chance for Zechariah to serve the Lord, and those that are with him are outside praying for him. You know, it's a comforting thing to know that people are praying for you when you're going through a blessing as well as a burden. Let's give these folks some credit here. They're praying for Lot while he's doing his priestly duty. It's a beautiful thing to do. It's a wonderful thing to pray for God's people when they're being blessed. It's a wonderful thing to pray for God's people when they're, not, when they're going through a difficult time. In 1682, the Puritan Stephen Charnock published a book on the attributes of God in which he demonstrated the greatness of God's dominion by describing a map of the world. He said, what is mighty old England except the spot on this map where you can cover it with your finger? England's just a spot on the map when you can cover it with a finger. He said that's the way God views the whole world. Simply a spot he can cover with one finger. When you understand that God's in control, when we're not in control, you understand that he's got this. And when you see a problem that you're going through and you don't understand what's happening, it's just a spot that God can cover with his finger. And then last night my wife came into some of us and she said, come on out of here a minute. And we went out to the front driveway and we looked up. And did you see the sky last night? Was it absolutely spectacular? It was a storm. But man, it was power on display. And I just kind of looked up there and I, I just kind of looked at it and I said, man, God, you're in control. And you got this power that I can't control. I know nothing about, but you are just demonstrating how powerful you really are. So I'm going to pray to that kind of a God when I pray. 
Uh, there's an author that I love. His name is Robert Morgan. He tells the story of a missionary, and the missionaries were, Helen Rosevere was her name. They were missionaries in Zaire. And they had a situation where a mother lost her life giving birth to a child. And they didn't have a water bottle. They needed desperately for the survival of this little baby to live. So they gathered some of the children around and said, we need to pray to God and ask God for a water bottle. Simple request, right? It's just a water bottle, but we need it. They didn't have it. And when they were praying, one of the little girls said, well, if we're going to pray for a water bottle, let's go ahead and pray for a doll. I really would like a doll, too. Seems like a pretty insignificant prayer, but to that little child, it's very significant. A water bottle for a child and a baby for a child. So let's just ask, come here, kids, let's, let's just get together and pray. And sure enough, the next day, a package arrives from England. Don't you love it when God answers a prayer just like that the next day? A package shows up and there's a bunch of stuff in there. And when they looked in the package, sure enough, there's a, a water bottle. And the little girl dove in and she said, there's got to be a baby doll in here somewhere for me. And she dives in and sure enough, isn't God good? There was a water bottle and a baby doll. And then they did a little more just searching. And you know what they found out? The box had been sent from England five months prior to the arrival at their mission statement. God is in control. We tend to react. God never reacts. He's always proactive. The Bible says in Matthew 6, he knows what we need before we ask. We must remember in our problems that when we pray, we're praying to a God that's in control. And we might not see the answer. We might not see his solution, but he knows the answer and he knows the solution and he'll reveal it at the perfect time. Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good for them that love the Lord. Look at in the next part of your outline, point number three, God works through prophecy. God works through prophecy. This is a longer section of scripture, but I want you to see this because it's really, really important. Luke chapter 11, verse 17. Now, there's a bunch of truths in here, but here's what I want you to see as we go through here. Notice how the angel reveals to Zechariah what's going to happen in the future. It's pretty powerful stuff. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. I would be gripped with fear if he saw an angel. But the angel said to him, Zechariah, don't be afraid. Watch this now. Your prayer has been heard. Now let's just stop there for a second. Now we know the Bible says that Zachariah and Elizabeth are older folks. They were barren. And here's an angel saying to him, Zachariah, your prayer. It doesn't say prayers, plural, prayer. Can you imagine what that prayer is? It's a prayer for a child. You know, you might have thinking that God's forgotten about you. You might be thinking that God has forsaken you. How have you interpreted God in this long delay? We know that they're blameless and upright. But the Zechariah, the first thing the angel says to him is, your prayer has been heard. Friends, don't get discouraged. Don't give up on God when it seems like he's given up on you. I noticed I said when it seems like he's given up on you. He knows what he's doing. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. There's the prayer answer. Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son and you're to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. Isn't it a joyful and a delightful thing when God answers your prayer? And many will rejoice, not just you, because of his birth. Now watch this verse 15. He will be great 
in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will bring back to the Lord, will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient of the wisdom to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The first thing we see here is that Zachariah's prayer was remembered. Oddly enough, you know what his name Zachariah means? Zachariah's got a really cool name to it. It means Jehovah has remembered. Isn't that cool? Zachariah's name means God, Jehovah, has remembered. Don't you love it when God's remembered you in the midst of your long, difficult trials and problems? Seems like it takes forever and God shows up. He remembers you. It's a beautiful thing to tell yourself God has remembered me. It's not because he doesn't love you. He's trying to internalize something on the inside of you to make you trust him more. You know, you and I think God waits too long, don't you? But God never waits too long. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. But here's the thing we've got to learn. When God answers prayers, it's not for our glory, it's for his glory. Do you really think that God doesn't love you? He's trying to get the self-centeredness out of us and replace us with the Jesus-centeredness. He wants our prayers to bring him glory, not ourselves. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We don't pray and ask God to do our stuff. We're praying for God to do his stuff through us. One of the greatest things in life is to be used from the Lord. That's how we define greatness. God used me for his glory. To him be the honor. To him be the praise. Are you willing to pray those kinds of prayers? God, don't make me great. Make your purposes and your plans great through me. If you're going to pray those kinds of prayers, every force of hell will come oppose, oppose you. Every obstacle will come your way. And try to get you to turn your back on the Lord Almighty. But God is great. And God is good. And he is the one that if we really trust him. Will use our prayers to further his glory. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to give him the name John. There's obedience that's required. When God answers a prayer. You can't just change it when God gives it to you. Notice what it says in verses 14 and 15. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. God's prayers answered are not just for your benefit, but many will rejoice. God will do something through you for others to rejoice. When you and I choose to delight in the Lord, God will use our circumstances to bring others glory to us. Will you let God get the glory if it means you don't? That's what he's saying here. Many will, he will be a joint delight to you, but others will rejoice because of his birth. I've allowed you to walk through this season of length for a time so that others might benefit. You know, God answers our prayers for his purposes, not our pleasure. We want God to do our bidding. We want God to be a genie in the bottle where he gives us what he wants, what we want. But God's under no obligation to give us what he wants. I've been reading a book on the Puritans. And in the Puritans, we're talking about tribulations and trials. And tribulations and trials are designed to remove selfish, self-centeredness from us and replace it with God-centeredness and God-fruitfulness. That God can purge from us, prune from us those things that keep us from him. Verse 17 says, the purpose, repentance. And he will go on before the Lord, the Lord Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Watch this now, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. You know, there's always been a time when fathers would need to turn their hearts to their kids because fathers sometimes turn their hearts away from their children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. There's two types of turning there. 
turn the hearts of parents to their kids, but also the disobedient to wisdom, the disobedient to righteousness. That was the purpose of John the Baptist's greatness. He had a task, and that's what it was. John, you're going to be great because you're going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and you're going to be great because you're going to turn the disobedient of the wisdom to the righteous. That's how God sees greatness. And the same thing is true for all of us. When we do those two things, when fathers turn their hearts toward our kids, and when the disobedient turn from the, uh, disobedience to the righteousness of God, that's what God wants. And notice how he describes those folks to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. God wants a people who are prepared. Is your heart going to be prepared for when Jesus shows up? That's what he was trying to do then. It's what he's trying to do now. God wants to show up in our midst. God wants to show up in beautiful and powerful ways. He'll use a long problem to get there. A lot of prayers to get there. But when he does, he knows he's in control. He knows what's going to happen. Do you trust him for it? The worst thing we can do is jump the gun. The worst thing we can do is say, hey, I'll take it from here, God. After his ordination in 1969, there was a pastor named Philip Johnson whom God called to serve one large church and 10 smaller churches on the northern coast of Canada. On the first day of his new ministry, he learned that his first church, the smallest of the churches, he would have to get there by getting on a snowmobile and riding 40 miles to the church. Can you imagine driving 40 miles? It'd probably be pretty cool, to be honest with you. To get on a snowmobile and drive 40 miles to your church. When he got there, there was only one person there for worship. A fisherman who also had traveled 20 miles. Can you imagine one church, this pastor is driving 40 miles by a snowmobile, and the fisherman travels 20 miles to get there. And you're thinking, well, hey, let's just go through the motions here and get this over with. But the pastor said, you know what? This is God's church. God needs to be worshipped. It's about him. It's not about us. So we're going to have a church service like there's a bunch of people here. So they did it all. Hymns, read the Bible, they prayed, he preached a long sermon, they had the Lord's Supper, and then they had the benediction. Preacher said, hey, one person here, we're going to have church. We've done that at Antioch a few times through the years, haven't we? The fisherman never looked up during the whole time when the preacher was preaching. But when Johnson went to the door and greeted him as he left, here's what the fisherman told the preacher. Reverend, I've been thinking about becoming a Christian for 30 years. Today is the day I chose to give my heart to Jesus Christ. You know, when you hear a story like that, God goes to great lengths. He'll wait a long time to show up for one person, for one person. 40 miles on a snowmobile, 20 miles. Are are you here today? Is God the one that wants to show up in your life today? Is today the day for you? You see, as we go through John the Baptist's life, it was all geared for that, for people to return to the Lord. The word repentance means, God, I'm not going to do it my way anymore. I'm going to do it your way. I'm not going to just think about it. I'm going to run to you. I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to give you my life, and I'm going to give you my heart. I'm going to lay my desires on the altar, and I'm going to do what Jesus wants. That's repentance. It's hard to do, because we all feel like we know what's best. But Jesus knows what's best. And he will send you through 40 miles of snow just for a response from one sinner. He sent John the Baptist and showed us what greatness is. Through a problem, through prayers, and through a prophecy of what was going to happen in the future. He will be great and he'll lead people to the Lord. And that's what we want to do today. 
You might know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you don't. Is today the day where you can find Jesus? If one person can find Jesus in a one preacher, one person church service, surely today is the day of salvation for you. Can you give your heart to Jesus Christ? Our God is good and he knows what he's doing. Would you join me in prayer?